The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This recording was first released on January 23rd, 2018, but you might be surprised how well it holds up few years later. Enjoy. Unless you've been otherwise engaged, disconnected from the web, living on a tiny island without satellite communications, you certainly have been aware of the vertiginous and sudden rise of Bitcoin, both as a social phenomenon and as a financial one. Its increase in value since its beginnings has been astonishing, rising to a peak of $64,000 per coin though it has been incredibly volatile and has since fallen back, and may, by the time you're listening, have exceeded that. Who knows? That's led to questions. Is Bitcoin a bubble? Is it not a bubble? What constitutes a digital bubble anyway? What's going on? Are digital currencies the wave of the future or the fad of the present? And of course, now there are multiple currencies ranging from Ethereum to Dogecoin to Stablecoin to all the coins you can find on any one of those new trading apps from Robinhood on down. A few years ago, I had the privilege of talking with one of the early Bitcoin apostles as well as entrepreneurs, Wences Caceres. And he is the founder of a company called Zappo, which is a wallet and a storage for digital currencies and for Bitcoin, though he has since changed that model to be much less consumer-oriented than it was at the time when I had the conversation with him. Uh, Wentz has started several businesses before Zappo, including one of the first internet services in Argentina, which he started in his 20s during the 1990s, and then sold it for a tidy sum to Banco Santander. He now sits on the board of PayPal, but for the purposes of this conversation, Wences is the Bitcoin visionary par excellence. He believes that Bitcoin is not simply a digital innovation for currency, but a potential vehicle for the democratization of money and for the facilitation of global commerce and prosperity in a way that doesn't depend on governments and banks to facilitate. That may, of course, end up being a vision for the future, or it may be one of the many dreams that people have had from time immemorial that go unrequited. Either way, having a conversation about Bitcoin and about digital currencies without reference to Wences would be a shame. And so we're going to have that conversation today. And 
By the way, since I had this conversation, since it was recorded a few years ago, many of the ideas and views in this have actually come to pass more quickly in that there is now an entire architecture that's not just about Bitcoin, but about blockchain as the new disruptive technology that's going to reshape particularly the financial industry. Uh, and so even though this wasn't on the cards or wasn't immediately on the table, when Wences and I had the conversation, in many ways, this is a, a harbinger of things to come, or at least it was a harbinger of things that have now come to pass. So Wences, you are now at the epicenter of one of the most debated and talked about phenomenon of our day, which is the rise of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. You and I have been talking about this for five years, and you've certainly been involved in this for somewhat longer, even though this is pretty much virgin territory for everyone else. So, just as a general and beginning softball question, what do you make of all this frenzy that has suddenly erupted? Did you expect it to happen now-ish or eventually? And what's going on? No, I had no clue when it was going to happen. Um, Bitcoin is the most one of the most interesting experiments going on right now. and But it's still an experiment. And I think that as... As an experiment, it has a chance of failing, and that chance is not fa not not trivial. Um, probably uh, as much as 20% chance of failing and being worthless. But I also think that it has a, a higher than 50% chance of succeeding, and if it succeeds, uh, it's going to be uh, worth more than a million dollars in less than 10 years. So, so I'm not. I'm not surprised by this because this is how it would eventually get there. Um, having said that, there's a lot of risk that it doesn't happen. So when you talk about a price, I'm, I'm always curious about this. A lot of people throw out price points for Bitcoin. How does one assess an eventual price? Because you hear a lot of people going, Bitcoin could go to $40,000 a coin by the end of 2018, or it could go to 100000 or you just throw out a million. Where do you come up with a potential number? I think that if Bitcoin succeeds, it's going to be worth at least a million dollars per Bitcoin. Because a scenario in which Bitcoin succeeds, it's a scenario in which Bitcoin becomes the first global apolitical standard of value. And today, the only apolitical standard of value we have, it's gold, and it hasn't been very important financially for uh, at least 100 years. And we are using the U.S. dollar and the euro and the yen to a lesser degree as standards of value, but they are very political standards of value. So if you were to replace all of that for for a true apolitical standard of value, the 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 the, the value of all all gold above ground is about seven trillion dollars. The the value of global uh, money M1 is around 60 trillion dollars. A million dollars, a Bitcoin would be 21 trillion dollars. So more than gold, but less than money. Hmm. And it's consistent with what we have seen so far. Now that would imply about two billion people using Bitcoin. So people throw out these arguments, right? Here's why Bitcoin isn't a currency. There's not enough transactions. It's not a good store of value because it's so volatile. How do you respond to those complaints, criticisms? It's like saying in 1994, the internet's not going to work because I just waited three minutes for my picture to download. If you're looking just at, 
that moment in time, um, you're missing the movie and where these things are going. Eventually, pictures are going to download faster, and eventually you're even going to be able to see video. Eventually, you're going to be watching whole movies on the Internet. But this is what makes sense for, for Bitcoin today. In fact, Bitcoin cannot be a global standard of value and a global standard of settlement if it's only a couple hundred billion dollars. Global trade needs a lot more than that. It needs a, a few trillion dollars. To, to exaggerate, if we have a currency that only has $100 worth of that currency, it cannot accommodate a $1,000 transaction. The same is true for a global standard of value needs to be in the trillions. So if it, for Bitcoin to get to the trillions, it has to go up many, many times where it is uh, today. And if it has to go up a lot, the only healthy way for it to go up is with a lot of volatility. Imagine if I am right, it's going to go to a million dollars. Imagine that it went from where it is now to a million dollars. It has to go up 50 times or more. Imagine that it went up 1% every week. It would be a matter of time before... First, if the price were stable, uh, the currency is too small. <laughs> it, ca it cannot accommodate global trade. Right. So it needs to grow as people come in. If it's going to grow in a stable manner, it's only a matter of time before people are saying, hey, this thing... It's awesome. It goes up every week. We should mortgage our house and put all the money here. And one great, great thing about Bitcoin is that today is that most of the money that people have in Bitcoin is money they can't afford to lose. I don't know almost anyone who has an amount of Bitcoin they cannot afford to lose. And that's not because regulators are brilliant or because people are wise or because the companies do a great job. No. The only reason people are not putting money in Bitcoin they cannot afford to lose is because of volatility. We have to thank volatility for that. So from here to a million dollars a coin, the more volatility, the better. Of course, once you have something <clears throat> that is in the trillions, uh, volatility will also decrease, right? Volatility is like, a, it's like a little boat. If you and I are in a little tiny dinghy, uh, I can close my eyes and I can tell what you're doing. You went to the bow, you went to starboard, just because I feel the boat moving. That is the currency of $200 billion uh, with little flows in and out and it jumps up and down in price. Uh, but if we're in a, in a cruise ship, uh, I can close my eyes and you can do all you want, jump up and down, go to the bow, go aft, starboard port, and I have no clue what you're doing. Right. That's the currency in the trillions, right? We, so we, we will get there, but right now volatility is our friend. It would be one. I, it may, it, I think that one of the riskiest things that could happen to Bitcoin, and one of the most likely ways it could fail, is by uh, people putting an amount of money they cannot afford to lose collectively. That can easily create a panic that can drive Bitcoin to close to zero. In the midst of this volatility, you also have a proliferation of alternate digital currencies. What's going on here? I mean, are, are, are these trees and branches attempts to create alternate pathways that you think are going to fail? And if, they're, if you think they're going to fail, why, why will they fail versus Bitcoin succeeding? I do think right now that most other cryptocurrencies are going to fail. It's just like at the very beginning of the Internet, there were other protocols that competed with the Internet, uh, X25, Frame Relay. And people thought that we were going to use uh, the Internet only for email and web, but that for applications that needed a lot of bandwidth, like video, people thought that we were going to use X25 or for applications that needed 
very low latency, like voice. People thought we were going to use frame relay. And in reality, the incentives are such that today transport is only one protocol, and it's and it's the internet. And I think the same is true for value. If it has to settle value in any shape or form, it's most likely going to be the Bitcoin blockchain. It has more users. It adds in any given month more users than all the other thousand cryptocurrencies have added in their entire history. It moves more money every day than all of the other currencies put together. It has more hashing power than all of them put together. It's really hard to replicate that, those network effects. So you think it's a superior software and technology as opposed to some of these others that claim that they're superior and have more usability, more flexibility? No. No, Bitcoin is not superior. In fact, most other currencies are superior, technically. They were all launched after Bitcoin, and it would be a little silly to launch something after Bitcoin that is not superior to Bitcoin. Why would you launch it? <laughs> no, um, but, but that's not the point, meaning uh, email is not a very good protocol. <clears throat> Even if you and I can come up with a better protocol. It was not designed to do what we're doing with it, to manage the amount of email that we're managing, to manage spam, to manage the attachments. You and I could come up with a much, much, much better email fairly easily, uh, but it would be irrelevant just like it would be relevant to come up with a better Bitcoin. Part of the challenge, of course, is Bitcoin has become the catchword for, for a whole series of different innovations or mirages that have evolved in this space, including, uh, at the time that we're talking, the sort of the financialization of Bitcoin. What I mean by that is the launching of different financial derivatives and futures contracts. And of course, there are all these, which I don't claim to understand, initial coin offerings, right? Maybe you can yep. give us a moment of like, what exactly is an initial coin offering? It's related to, to, to Bitcoin, but it's separate, right? An initial coin offering is a digital token that anyone can issue. You and, you and I could issue a digital token uh, and we can decide the properties for it. And we could say that in order for people to listen to this, this podcast, they have to have one of our uh, tokens, otherwise they cannot listen to it. And the ICO, Initial Coin Offering, is the moment where we first release those tokens to the public. And what do you make of all these? I mean, does this fall into the category of lots of people just throwing stuff out there, sort of the equivalent of a you know, mid-1990s, there were 27 search engines. Time will tell. I feel like that's the case. I think that most, most other cryptocurrencies and most ICOs will fail, will go to zero. Um, with so much experimentation, you know, there's hundreds of cryptocurrencies, there's hundreds of ICOs. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, a couple that find something interesting. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those interesting things are then adopted by, by Bitcoin and developed on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. But right now, to me, it does feel... It's hard for me to... to I can articulate why Bitcoin could potentially have value. I, I don't yet can articulate why other cryptocurrencies or ICOs could have value. And that doesn't mean... It could very well be my fault. You know? I'm not saying that that means that the ICOs or the other cryptocurrencies on Hawaii. It's just that I haven't gotten to the point where I can understand why they would have value. Hey, it's Emma. 
They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. How quickly is the adoption of Bitcoin by merchants and people who who want to transact, how quickly has that been moving? I know a couple of years ago there was actually, there were stories and there was some discussion of some car vendors and real estate, you know, people who are beginning to allow for payment in Bitcoin. Uh, I haven't heard as much about that. That just may be my own ignorance slash the focus has been entirely on the price movement and the investing frenzy. But how quickly is actual use adoption happening globally? Payments is not really, uh, especially merchant payments, it's not very relevant for Bitcoin adoption. Bitcoin is uh, moving around $800 million a day, same amount as PayPal today. And But most of that money is moving cross-border. That's where Bitcoin competes really well. You know, I did this experiment and we sent uh, $1,000 from Palo Alto, California to Sydney, Australia. We sent $1,000 wire transfer and then we sent $1,000 inside the FedEx envelope. And the FedEx got there before the wire transfer, which is ridiculous in the 21st century that that's the case, right? And this is Australia. I wasn't sending to Indonesia or Turkey. So uh, most of that money that, that Bitcoin is moving uh, is m- money that has to move across borders, cross borders where Bitcoin can compete really well. Um, it, it, it doesn't really compete. If you can pay with a credit card, it's, you're much better off paying with a credit card. If you can pay with PayPal, you can, PayPal uh, is much better. It really competes where you have 
uh, no options or, or very bad bank options. And is that where you see the future or is it going to become much more of a use case, meaning you'll be able to walk into a vendor, whether it's a car company or a restaurant, and pay with obviously a portion of a, a unit of a Bitcoin? I don't see that happening <clears throat> very much, but we are speculating here. We don't know, right? Anything could happen. Um, my my sense is that um, Silicon Valley is waiting for the killer app of Bitcoin to be living in. And Wall Street is waiting for the payment app, payment usage to be living in. And I think Bitcoin uh, is likely to succeed before any of them see any killer app or payment usage. Because I think if Bitcoin succeeds, it's going to become a global standard of value coupled with a global standard of settlement. And a global standard of value is hard to understand, especially if you're sitting in the U.S. where the dollar has worked quite well forever. Um, but but it's ironic that um, where where did um, which was uh, your uh, ancestor who came to the U.S. Zachary? Uh, my great grandfather in early part of the 20th century. If we wanted to compare how much your great grandfather paid for their first cabin or house or apartment when they came to America, with how much my grandfather paid for their first cabin when they went to Patagonia. For example, if we wanted to compare how many square footage each had, it would be a very straightforward comparison, right? Your great-grandfather had a cabin that was 2,500 square foot, and my... Yeah, that would have been amazing, had, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1,500 <laughs> here in Patagonia. But it's easy, and it's straightforward. Now, when we go to value, uh, we have no choice but to make some... We need to adjust it to compare prices in different times and different geographies. And the adjusting is always somewhat subjective, right? And we take it for granted. Yeah, that's that's the case. But that's as ridiculous as saying, you know, we do not need to adjust the square footage. <laughs> Why do we need to adjust value? And we need to adjust value because value today is political. Uh, if they both have paid in gold, which is not political, it would be a super easy comparison. Right. My grandfather paid it. 30 grams or your great-grandfather paid 50 grams. And it's easy. But we're not there, and we haven't been there for almost you know, a couple hundred years. And uh, it is a good thing for, for the global economy to have a non-political standard of value. Gold was that for a very long time, but it hasn't played that role. And Bitcoin adds to that something almost magical, which is a non-political standard of settlement. So it's not only a standard of value that no one can mess with, or change, but it's also a standard of settlement that no one can can mess with, and it's open for everybody. Today, any settlement network requires that you be a bank. If you want to be part of Visa or Mastercard, only banks can be part of Visa or Mastercard. If you want to be part of the ACH uh, clearing network in the U.S., only banks can be. The Fedwire, only banks. SWIFT, only banks. SEPA in Europe, only banks. And and. And the banks take their time to do this and their expense, and, and, and it's quite inefficient. That's why it's a FedEx envelope with $1,000 gets more quickly to Sydney than a bank transfer. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's an open settlement network. You can participate. I can participate. Any company can participate. Any bank can participate. And if, if, if China is at war with Russia, any Chinese 
person can settle with any Russian person, despite their countries being at war, on a Sunday at 2 a.m. That's we've never seen anything like it. It it really changes the world for good and forever. It's a, it's a leap in the democratization of money. I imagine a world in which, whenever you ask for the price of a currency, and say, "What's the price of the new Zealand dollar or the or the Norwegian krona or the Turkish lira?" The answer is always in bits, fractions of a Bitcoin. Oh, it's 1,200 bits or 1,700 bits or 2,000 bits. And when you ask for things that are traded internationally, commodities and other goods, so what's the price of aluminum? X bits. And I would imagine that when someone from Kenya is trading with someone from China, they don't use the euro, which doesn't belong to either one of them, or the, uh, or the Kenyan shilling or, or the Chinese currency, which is just one of them. They use a neutral currency that has neutral non-political value and that they can both use to settle. I imagine that when, when that happens, you look at the central banks of the world and the one thing they will have in the reserves more than gold and more than, than dollars will be Bitcoin. And, and, and banks around the world in their tier one capital, they will have more Bitcoin more than anything else. And these companies, banks, will use that to keep value and also to settle. And all of that can happen without having any single killer obligation and a single retail payment use. Right? All right, so this raises the, the question of at what point, if ever, do sovereign governments begin to view digital currencies and Bitcoin in particular as a threat to their sovereignty over fiat currencies, right? So a lot of people, the, the appeal of gold for people in the past 50 years has been a, a distrust of fiat currencies, of governments issuing paper money based purely on the trust and faith that they'll honor the commitments that that money, you know, the words on that paper suggest. Bitcoin is another potential sort of non-government store of value, but governments don't particularly like things happening when it comes to the financial system within their borders that they can't monitor, control, regulate. That just tends to be what happens. So how can Bitcoin evolve much more without governments beginning to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're going to treat this as a currency that we regulate or we're going to treat this as, an, uh, as a financial instrument that we're going to regulate? Yeah, it could be that all the governments in the world get together and agree that they're going to criminalize Bitcoin. They do not have the power. That's amazing about Bitcoin, that even if all the countries in the world decided to eradicate Bitcoin, they cannot eradicate it. But what they can do is criminalize it. They can say, any citizen of my country who touches Bitcoin will go to jail, for example. And if that was done globally, Bitcoin would only be used in the shadow economy, in the black market, etc., etc., that could happen. And, and, and if that happened, Bitcoin wouldn't be successful. It definitely wouldn't be a million dollars a coin. So um, that's one of the many risks, and it's totally possible. I think it's more likely that for a country like the U.S., just like the Internet destroyed a lot of value and created a lot of value, but net-net created a lot of value, and net-net it helped the U.S. more than it uh, hindered it, I think that same is true for Bitcoin, that um, the the one country that can benefit the most is the one that would also be uh, losing the most, and net-net would be making a big difference. No other country can benefit more from from a 
the globalization of commerce and finance it, and, and it's prepared and, 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 and has the size and, the, and, the, and no, no other country compares to the U.S. Uh, and in how it took advantage of the Internet. And for the same reason, no other country can take more advantage of Bitcoin than the U.S. And for, for smaller countries, it's, it's, um, it's an easier choice, right? It's, do you want to rely on a currency that is controlled by one other country, or do you want to rely on a currency that is apolitical? Um, so I can see both things happening. I could see this going the way of being uh, criminalized by governments. If I had to bet, I think more likely is that governments are going to take advantage of it. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. It is an interesting question of what happens with the dollar versus Bitcoin, and you raised that earlier in our discussion. I think the dollar lives, and it remains the currency of the most powerful and richest nation on the planet. But right now it's the currency of the world, and that doesn't really serve the world. The world would be much better off with a non-political currency. So you have an interesting vantage point at Zappo uh, in that you know you see a lot of transaction data, you house a fair number of coin. Where do you see this going globally in terms of is uh, the recent moves – the 2018 moves, 2017 moves in Bitcoin, are those global? Or are they mostly in the U.S.? Are they? There's a lot of uncertainty about what's going on in terms of China. Obviously, the Chinese, for the past two or three years, wealthy Chinese have taken advantage of Bitcoin for their own wealth preservation slash getting some money from mainland to offshore, which the Chinese government has certainly responded to, right? So where do you see this? Bitcoin has gone up in price from $0.09, cents, which is one of the first recorded prices in early 2011 or late 2010, to, to many thousands of dollars now in, in only five very discrete rallies. Most of the time, the price of Bitcoin is going nowhere or down, but it had had these five rallies in which the price went up a lot, often orders of magnitude. And each rally was slightly different, and each rally was a little more widespread than the previous rally. And this rally is definitely 
a global event and a somewhat institutional event, meaning it's the first time we're seeing um, institutions, family offices, companies uh, buying Bitcoin. Not yet, not yet banks, not yet no, central banks, not yet hedge funds or mutual funds, but a lot of other types of institutions are for the first time buying Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin in very large amounts. You know, in this one rally, we're seeing lots of purchases of five, ten, a hundred, two hundred million dollars, which we had not seen in prior rallies. Security and usability and ease. I mean, it's still, you know, it's not the easiest thing to transact. Your analogy earlier to trying to download a picture in 1994 on the internet and waiting three minutes and wondering if you were going to get disconnected and all those, it, figuring out how to use and store and preserve. Yes, and I am, you know, I am part of the Bitcoin industry and I am <clears throat> therefore partly guilty for that. And I think that's where we um, have a lot of work to do. It's really hard to use Bitcoin today or it's not as, as easy as it should be. And it feels a lot like the internet before the browser, right? With all of, when, when you had to use Unix screens um, to do all of, to, 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 to get any information. It was complicated, it was slow, it was arcane. And Bitcoin, to some degree, feels like um, it's there. Maybe, you know, maybe not for some basic things, but as soon as you want to do something more complicated, like send from one place to another or turn it into another currency or things like that, uh, it's it's hard. But but we have come a long way, and today you have a number of, of companies that make it safe. That wasn't the case three years ago. Today you have a number of companies that are very well run, very well capitalized, that make it uh, very easy for you to keep your Bitcoin safely. And increasingly there are a number of companies that in some countries make it very easy for you to to acquire Bitcoin and to sell the Bitcoin. So we're making progress, but there's a lot that needs to be done. So it's funny, when we talked about this a while ago, one of the things that was most compelling about your vision, and indeed the vision of a lot of people for blockchain and for Bitcoin, was a world where too many people either didn't have access to banks, didn't have access to credit systems or payment systems like PayPal, didn't trust in the integrity of, of the government that was issuing a fiat currency. Obviously, you had an experience based on your own background growing up in Argentina where the government constantly messed with the value of the currency for their own political purposes. A lot of people accuse the United States and the Fed of doing the same thing with the dollar, even though Americans roundly denied that they're doing anything like that. So there was a sense of a digital currency that was globally functional that was n not issued by government that allowed for peer-to-peer -peer transactions not mediated by a bank could unleash a degree of, of global commerce and global connectivity that was equally as visionary as some of the early visions of internet and technology. Do you still feel that in light of everything that's going on? I do, yes. And, and in fact, uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't feel that way. Um, I I grew up in Patagonia, in the southern part of Argentina, and in while I was growing up, I saw my family lose everything three times. The first time because of a massive devaluation, the second time because because of very, very high hyperinflation, 
and the third time because the government confiscated bank deposits. Every time it had to do with the government somehow messing with the currency or the banks or both. And and I saw how much my family suffered with that. My memory of what of that of those events is not an economic memory. It's a it's a, a an emotional sort of um, uh, social memory. I remember what it did to my parents' conversations and to their mood and their anxiety to to everybody around us. How it hit the poor more than the rest. How there were some people who were fortunate that they could either buy real estate or have a bank account in other countries to protect themselves and the, the poor couldn't do any of that and the, the government and bank took most advantage of them and and I forever thought that technology was going to solve that but it really so far it, it was a big disappointment what technology has done for basic financial services the basic checking account today operates the same way that it did 30 years ago. Just you can you can access the same functionality on home banking, but that's not much of an improvement. And the ATM card works the same way as it did 30 years ago. And so does the credit card. It's 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 really sad to see how little progress we've made. And the percentage of the global population that has access to a basic checking account and a basic debit card is the same percentage that it was 20 years ago. Hmm. So it sounds like if we have to depend on banks to to get the rest of the population a, a product that can really help them, we will be waiting a very long time. And Bitcoin is the first time that I see something that can really change this forever. And and that's what motivates me to um, to dedicate the rest of my career, the, the the my reputation and 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 most of my capital to help Bitcoin succeed because nothing would make me prouder than to be able to tell my grandkids that I was part of a large group of people who collectively helped Bitcoin succeed, and that was the biggest leap in the democratization of money we have seen in a really long time, perhaps ever. And because of that, I can imagine a world in which what happened to my parents when I was growing up cannot happen again. Where People can say to the government, be responsible in what you do with my money, with your national currency, with the banks, because if you don't, now I have an alternative. You cannot take advantage of me. I have options. I just need a cell phone and I can protect myself. <laughs> and I think that's a much better world. No, it is a great vision and hopefully a vision that guides how these things are going to evolve. I do wonder about the question that's been raised recently, which I actually had not been so attuned to, about the the energy consumption of Bitcoin, kind of one of these unintended consequences of the proliferation of a technology, which, you know, you have the, the vision of what this can provide, but, but I hadn't been as attuned to the sheer server power and energy consumption costs of mining Bitcoin and transacting it. Is that going to change with computing power increasing? Is that an issue you foresaw? Or or is it actually not an issue the way it's been reported? I think that, it, I mean, it's true that Bitcoin consumes a lot of electricity and it will only, and the amount of electricity Bitcoin consumes will only go up. With other commodities, the price determines the production, right? If all of a sudden the barrel of oil goes to $200, we start pumping oil of places that is more expensive to pump, but now it's profitable. So if, if the barrel of oil goes to $200, production increases because we pump from other places that we couldn't pump before. The case of Bitcoin, production of Bitcoin is always the same. It's fixed. So if the price goes up, what happens is we just mine more. And uh, 
and and the, so basically, if the price goes up, the amount of electricity we spend to to mine Bitcoin goes up. So if I am right and the price of Bitcoin one day goes to a million dollars per coin, the amount of electricity that we are going to be spending it's going to be inordinate. I think that net net we are better off. I think that that's not something that we are spending for nothing. We are spending that electricity to have a ledger system that nobody can control. I, if we wanted to be efficient with energy, I would look at a lot of things before I looked at making this more efficient. There are a lot of other things that are more more inefficient and we're not getting um, enough in return. So I, I do think that it, 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 is, it is a fact that Bitcoin burns a lot of electricity. It will only burn more if it succeeds. I don't think that uh, that's a problem because we're getting more value than 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 what we're spending. And of course, right. And of course, that energy could be provided by renewable sources just as well as it yeah. could be provided by coal or or uh, other carbon sources. So yeah. there's there's that as well. Um, and you know, that's an interesting question of. of of usage, and that does lead to the other thought, which is everybody talking about Bitcoin as a bubble. Bubbles are misunderstood, in my view, in that the the pouring of excessive amounts of capital into something new is often what allows them to become much more commoditized. So, yes, there was a railroad bubble in the 1870s and 1880s, and most people in that early stage of investing in them lost their money, but we still that capital went and built railroads, and that became an incredible source of productivity. The same thing about fiber optics and the laying of the infrastructure for the, what, you know, today's global internet in the 1990s. A lot of that was excessive at the time. But what's the correlate for Bitcoin? Meaning, I understand that bubbles can be, even if they're poo-pooed and seen as inherently foolish and negative while they're happening, they can actually be the germination of something extremely productive how does a potential excessive amount of capital into Bitcoin help sort of the future of it? You know, because it doesn't have that tangible, it's not an investment in X that then leads to Y, the way railroads or, or fiber optics were. Only time will tell if this is a bubble or not. Um, nobody knows. Uh, we can all speculate and we can try to be as educated as we can, but we are speculating. And... If it's worthless in the future, this will have been a bubble. And if it's worth a million dollars, it will not have been a bubble. Uh, Generally, to define something as a bubble, you have to compare the the value of it against its intrinsic value, right? You compare the price of a house versus how much you get for renting it. And if you have to rent it for 150 years to get the money back, someone would say, "Maybe, maybe that's a bubble, right? And... Same thing with a company or with a bond. The problem with Bitcoin is that it doesn't have any intrinsic value. Zero. It doesn't have earnings. It doesn't have a coupon. It doesn't have any... any in, we cannot use it... We cannot eat it. We cannot use it to, for shelter. It has zero intrinsic value. Um, just like gold. Uh, the best forms of money have always had zero intrinsic value. And, and as such, it can... It can go up a lot because it's not bounded by fundamentals, but it can also go to zero. And, and as such, it's very, very hard to say what's a bubble. If we all agree that Bitcoin is going to be worth more, if we all pay more for it, it will not have been a bubble. If we all one day wake up and say, this is ridiculous, 
this is a worthless token and it should be zero, it will be zero and it will have been a bubble. Time will tell. Well, that is absolutely true. It'd be fun to have this conversation again in a year and then in two years. I'm sure we will have it. It'd be good to have it on record and on call. But I think for anyone out there, if you want to figure out what's going on in the world of Bitcoin, starting with Wences Caceres is probably as good an option as any, particularly given the noise and the confusion and the buzz and the hype and the hysteria. Wences has been thinking about all of this for years. I'm sure you'll keep thinking about it and try to shape the future of these digital currencies of blockchain and Bitcoin with integrity, hope, and vision, which is about all that we can ask of anybody. So thank you so much, Wences, for talking with me today. That's very kind. Thank you, Zachary. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I'll talk to you soon. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.